Hello and welcome to the Spotlight Edition of ESG Now. I'm your host, Benthe Kaplan. Still locked down in Cape Town, my kids are running amok, but podcasts are keeping me connected to the world of grown-ups, so it is all good. Now, in our Spotlight Edition, we're aiming to hit the sweet spots of ESG 101, a deliciously digestible ESG appetizer if you're into food-based analogies. Our aim is to get you, our most beloved listeners, a little peek behind the curtain, to let you know what we're really thinking and how our research team peers out at the world through their ESG-tinted glasses. On today's episode, we're taking a look at the oil and gas industry and how it's positioning itself against the shape of a global energy transition. You see, if you stumbled across just a few headlines in late April 2020, I wouldn't blame you for feeling just a tad apocalyptic. I mean, taking center stage is the COVID-19 pandemic, right? Millions infected, hundreds of thousands already having lost their lives, and billions having to navigate new challenges in their very basic ways of living. But close on its shoulder was news that the price of the West Texas Intermediate Crude, basically one of the compass points of the industrialized world, went below zero for the first time ever. And that effectively meant that if you had the space to store it, people would actually pay you to take oil off their hands. Say what? Now the reasons for these two events are complex and not entirely unrelated. But as we sit at home for the fifth or sixth week in a row, or try fitting face masks to our toddlers, or watch footage of massive field hospitals and see businesses closing left, right and center, a lot of people are wondering whether the world will ever be the same, when or if we get the coronavirus under control. And some are even going so far as to say that the coronavirus is going to pull the rug out from under the oil and gas industry and accelerate a transition to a low carbon economy. The kind of one that would be on the wish list of the Paris Accord. Suffice it to say, it's a complex, confusing, changing time, which is the perfect time to pull on some ESG-tinted glasses. Alright, so the oil and gas industry has had a long and colourful history, but 2020 is shaping up to be a whole new chapter. We're seeing something we haven't really seen before, not just low oil prices, but negative oil prices. And usually when prices are that low, consumption increases. But the COVID-19 chapter is anything but business as usual. I don't know about you, but with 3 billion people in lockdown, the only flying I'm doing at the moment is flying through Tiger King. And to my wife's minor annoyance, old episodes of The Wire. Now this double whammy of low prices and COVID-19 is basically a jab and hook combo to an industry that was already swaying. A lot of people will be watching to see how the oil and gas industry tries to shake all of this off and carry on. But before we get too far into the implications of these recent events for the oil and gas industry and its investors, let's start with some crib notes. To help me break things down into simple terms, I've got Antonios Panayotopoulos, who is a grizzly veteran of the ESG research team. In fact, Antonius, if memory serves, before joining up at MSCI, you plied your trade across the oil and gas value chain, from refining, optimization, to petrochemical pricing, to shipping. So maybe you can leverage some of that colorful past to give us an insider's view into the industry. Uh, okay, uh, I'll take that. I'll take that to the chin, uh, Bentley. The interesting part about oil and gas and their derivatives is that, uh, if you like, our contemporary way of life has oil and gas uh, intertwined to everything that we do from the car that we're driving uh, in the morning to go to work to every plastic uh, and every plastic derivative there is is made essentially out of oil and petrochemicals 
uh, and then our heating, the way we cook, everything that we do has oil or gas in it. Essentially, when we're talking about oil and gas, we're talking about companies that extract oil or gas from, uh, from the ground, and then they refine it and they, they break it down essentially to more valuable molecules. Then they distribute it. There are integrated oil and gas companies like the ones you mentioned in the beginning of our chat, uh, like Shell, BP, Exxon, that own the whole value chain. And now there are smaller, if you like, players that have parts of the value chain. So you have the independent refiners, you may have transmission and distribution companies that would probably contract the big oil companies to help them in some parts of the value chain. And then the, the end, if you like, of the value chain is the equipment and services companies that those again would contract their services or their equipment to again the big oil companies. Right, right, right. So first you've got the, the modern day prospectors, the upstream companies. And instead of divining rods, they're using seismic data from systems provided by companies like Amazon and Microsoft to hunt down the locations of oil and gas resources. And on top of tracking it down, upstream companies also drill into the source rock and extract the oil and separate all the other bits and pieces of non-oil from the oil. Right, then you have the companies that transport and store the oil, the midstream companies. These guys are the ones with those pipelines that stretch for thousands of miles. And although those pipelines get more than their fair share of the limelight, oil, of course, also gets moved around on trains and ships. And last but certainly not least, you've got the companies that refine the oil and magically convert it into all the different products that we use to power our lives and businesses, the downstream companies. And whether you're an up or a mid or a downstream company, the price of oil is a very, very big deal. Basically, if the oil passing through these companies is fetching a high price, it means nice, fat margins for their businesses. You can run a gajillion ton drill for months, hunting for oil like Captain Ahab, and still have money left over for ice cream. But if the price of oil starts to drop, then things get trickier. It can be too expensive to pull some oil out of the ground, even if you know it's there. And even if you've already got it out, it can be too expensive to ship it or even store it. Which is exactly what is happening now. And the pressure on some oil and gas companies might be too intense for them to grind it out through this COVID pandemic. And because oil and gas are interwoven into so much of our economy, it would not only be bad news for the companies extracting, transporting or selling oil, it would affect petrochemical companies, basically plastic producers. It would affect governments and whole countries that basically bank on oil revenues to run themselves. Countries like Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, Libya, Nigeria, Russia. Whatever happens next, the route that the industry chooses to go in these next few months could have long-lived consequences. So Antonius, I'm going to tag you back in. What can you tell us about where these companies are headed and the plans that they're busy making? Uh, things have changed in the oil and gas industry. I probably could have answered that question in much more certainty in the beginning of February. In a recent paper that I published, I looked at the previous four years and how companies behaved in that period. There were three trends that we kind of managed to, to identify. The one was that the return to shareholders, uh, where you see uh, the companies opting to give more money to shareholders relative to their capex, to their capital expenditures. The other one, the second one was the expansion of oil and gas reserves, which is a plausible strategy because the oil and gas prices were low. So therefore the value of those assets was relatively low. And therefore for oil and gas companies that believe into that future, 
expanding their oil reserves basis made sense. The average lifetime expectancy of, a, of the reserves is around 13 years. If you essentially do buy up reserves in oil and gas now, uh, you're looking well into the 2030s. And the third part was the, the, the more risky part, or at least from an oil and gas perspective, which is the, the investment in renewables. Some of those companies now have come up with net zero targets. So that's, that's a bit of a challenge. There's still no clear path to how to get there. But if anything, it's a, it's a step in the right direction. And at least companies need to let shareholders know about their plans, their strategies. Okay, okay. Hold on a sec. Let's break this down a little bit. I don't want any of that to get lost in the shuffle. So you saw three main trends in how oil and gas companies were planning for the future when the oil price was low, right? The first trend is give money back to shareholders. Keep them happy with dividends. It's also less risky since you aren't taking any operational risks or gambles. Then the second trend, double down. Buy more oil and gas reserves, bank on a 10 to 15 year time horizon, because basically that's how long it's going to take to get all the value out of the reserves that you buy today. Now this is where things start to get interesting, because companies are starting to put their money where their mouth is, or where their oil is, or where their oil will be, or whatever. For some investors, the size of a company's reserves is an indication of its long-term viability. It's basically future profit. And in that view, expanding your reserves, finding more oil and gas in the world, means that as a company, you've got a bright future. And then Antonius, the third trend you spotted was companies investing in renewables. Probably the most interesting one for me, because you've got these companies that are knee-deep in oil and gas and then planning a way out of it. In some ways, turning against everything that they've ever known, taking maybe the biggest swing for the fence, whether it's because of operational challenges or low oil prices, or ultimately a long-term shift away from fossil fuels towards renewables. Now, from your end, what are you seeing with regard to these companies? If they're looking for a backdoor out of the oil and gas industry, how are they doing it? Uh, it's, a, it's a very fair question. So there are, there are a couple of ways that you can do that, a couple of, if you like, exits, exit strategies from, from fossil fuels. One is that you, that you just scale back. You say, I see that this, is an, this business is not going to make any profits in the future, and therefore I inform my shareholders and I, I scale down operations. The second one is that I become an energy company that uh, actually deals with electricity. And then there is also the third way, which involves um, uh, a lot of patchwork and a lot of greenwashing, where you play up carbon capture and storage. In order for carbon capture and storage to be profitable, you need to be emitting carbon in the first place. You buy carbon offsets, which is the other, the other way, which is quite popular with companies that are in carbon intensive sectors. Um, so those are the three ways, if you like, that you can deal with the challenge. Shareholders should be involved uh, in those discussions and they should be driving those discussions. And yeah, those companies that do have those discussions are the ones that are going to more likely going to be further ahead uh, in that uh, race to a two or one and a half degree temperature. Okay, so two things come to mind there, right? And the first is the 1.5 or two degree scenario you've just mentioned. And the second is that you've touched on shareholders and the interests a couple of times. Both of those tie into the last point I want to roll into, and that is the growing pressure that investors are under to lower the carbon intensity of their investments. And it's not so much just a question of scope one or direct operational emissions, but how much of your portfolio is tied to the carbon value chain? 
including your downstream or scope 3 emissions. As with all things ESG, some of the early steps are about transparency. So in that spirit, what are some of the ways that investors or industry stakeholders in general could look at the oil and gas industry relative to a potential energy transition away from fossil fuels? A transition that may or may not be accelerated by COVID-19. So I would start with current exposure uh, that the company has, at least in terms of uh, reserves, in terms of production. And then as you're moving from the past into the future, you start to look at management and what management does, uh, both from an ESG ratings perspective. But uh, recently we have, from at least from 2019, we have the low carbon transition score where it takes the current uh, business mixes of the company. And, and that offers, if you like, a bit of a forward-looking signal on the sense that the business segment does not change necessarily from one day to the other to the next. For those companies, the oil and gas ones, uh, it identifies them as a, a in the category of product transition, again, because their scope three emissions is higher than scope one and two. So, uh, and then also we are preparing, we've been working uh, quite diligently in setting up a model for scope three emissions to more granularly capture those emissions and be able to show the footprint or the exposure uh, to carbon emissions. All right, well, that's a decent teaser. I'm not gonna nudge you for more. And if you're listening to this and you are an investor, your problem at the moment is probably not a shortage of investment tools linked to climate change or carbon. But maybe if there's anything to take from the pandemic in which we find ourselves it's that the margin of error on our assumptions, all of our assumptions, could probably do with a little bit of fattening up. I mean, I was just blissfully taking for granted that when my toddlers started getting stir-crazy, that I could just take them to a park and watch them bump into other kids for a couple of hours until they calmed down. Or counting on coffee shops being open. Or, you know, counting on grocery stores having flour at all. And we've probably done kind of the same with oil and gas, taking its presence in our everyday lives as a given, or at least for the next couple of decades, a sort of irresistible inertia. But whether through COVID-19 or geopolitical games of chicken or a stakeholder-led transition to renewable energy, it might not be. And sure, that kind of uncertainty is just part of reality. But if you're an investor, squaring up against that uncertainty is just part of the deal. And doing nothing is not an option. You've got to pick a horse to back, whether it's counting on the ingenuity of oil and gas companies to engineer their own future, or get out while the getting's good, or a little something in between. But you're not alone, because taking a company and working to understand how environmental, social, or governance risks will position it through this uncertainty is what ESG is all about. And that's it for this episode. A huge thanks to Antonius for indulging me, for giving up his time. Truth be told, as an extrovert in lockdown, I think he was secretly glad to be able to talk to me for any shred of human contact. A big thanks to Mike for helping me get some polish on this episode. Thanks to you for tuning in. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you're listening to this. All and any feedback is great for us. It helps us get better and to get you what you really want to hear. Don't forget to hit that old subscribe button. Stay safe, stay sane. Take a moment to think of your extrovert friends if they're stuck in lockdown. And more than anything, let's keep washing those hands.
The MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction and whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.